Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of Down the Pub. We are in the Mary Rose. Uh, We have been delayed while Johnny finished his dinner um, and we're having a bit of a middle class off because apparently his dinner uh, is not up to scratch this today. What did you have, Johnny? Uh, Pasta with leeks, pancetta and Um, mushrooms. Very pleasant it was too. Andrew Lay's in the house though. He who came up with the immortal line last time he was on of I had a mouthful of tart, um, says that he just had veal ragu. Very pleasant. Yeah, very nice. Anyway, uh, so Andrew is in the house as well. Uh, We have our barfly, James. Hey, James. Hey, uh, you all right? Well, let's just do it with everyone. You haven't had dinner, have you? You're having cider for dinner. No, no, I've had something to eat. I'm just completely shattered today. All right, we also have John joining us. He's got a beautiful view of Atlanta outside his window that he's sharing with us. Hey, John. Yeah, it's uh, as you may be able to see in the background, our football stadium is just as empty as everyone's theirs. Makes me so sad. We've just been having a whine um, about the football. Uh, We also have Charlotte Ward with us again. Hey, Charlotte. Hi. She's, uh, I'm actually definitely putting her thing out next week about Victoria's Wicked Uncles, which <laughs> the Lloyd's Registry's uh, Heritage Foundation now. How's it? What have you had for dinner? I had hot dogs for dinner. Oh, awesome. Yeah, that was quite nice. <laughs> I'm now. I've had a bag of low-fat crisps so far. Who else <laughs> have you got in the house? Clive O'Connell's back. Hey, Clive. Hi, Alex. Undisputed, poshest man here. What did you have for dinner, Clive? I had one of Waitrose's finest lasagnas. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, and we also have Andrew Dorman joining us from Dublin again. Hey. Hello. People from Cork caught up with you yet? Uh, nope, still on the run. We're good. Idiots. Uh, uh, what have you had for dinner? Um, it's, well, sweet and sour chicken, but it was from Marks and Spencer's, so it's somewhat middle class. We are. We are a bit posh today, aren't we? Alina's here as well. She's not really paying attention. She's trying to get something ready for an anniversary next week. Uh, Alina? Hi, I'm sitting and translating. So um, the more you speak Polish, the better it is for me right now. Yeah, uh, we won't do that, but thanks. Uh, Okay, we're going to discuss today um, history's most important moment. Um, And we've decided to define a moment as not lasting more than seven days so that people couldn't pick something like uh the invention of writing or something like that to make it a bit different 
Um, so we've got some good ones actually. We've got some really interesting ones. Uh, where should we go first? Eyeing you all as who's going to be my victim first. Let's do James, just because James is always good at starting us off. Go on, James. Tell us what you've gone for. I like your one. Oh, yeah, I... considering it is of a legal persuasion and you're in a room full of lawyers, that um, this is not going to end up being fun for you, but go for it. Well, it's just going to be the first week all over again, isn't it, Alex? So um, I've <laughs> gone for the most important moment in history, the signing of the Magna Carta on 15th of June, 1215 at Runnymede. So obviously, Magna Carta, I've chosen this moment because it was the signing of it. I'm not including the negotiations beforehand. I'm not including some of the stuff afterwards. But obviously, it was helped drafted by the Archbishop of Canterbury, but also all the magnates of both sides in England. Um, obviously, William and Marshall being the most important one on the king's side. And uh, basically, it was basic rights, protection of church rights, protection from illegal imprisonment of the barons by the king, access to swift justice. It formed part of the later peace treaties, including Lambeth at 1217, but I'll touch on that later. I mean, it's the signing of it. It's just influenced so much in history. The 1297, King Edward I, confirming it part of statutory law. The falsely believed impression of it in the 16th century and how it was used to basically fight against the divine right of kings with the latest civil war, the glorious revolution of 1688. And yeah... Uh, sorry, also helped inspire the American Revolution and the Constitution of 1787. To some extent, also the French Revolution, because they never had anything similar. So it still remains a powerful, iconic document and moment, despite all the stuff mainly being repealed in the 19th, 20th century, and also historians realising that a lot of the stuff in there wasn't necessarily as a document for everyone but mainly as the barons it's still an important symbol of liberty coming from this moment even today while it wasn't sex uh, unsuccessful in what it was intended to do as a peace treaty initially it's also i think arguably the first peace treaty that was negotiated in my opinion where the winning side just didn't put all the demands on this was something that was negotiated and signed by people on both sides. I mean, you had, I think it was, oh God, I'm looking here, 16 barons, including the famous William of Marshall, who arguably, without it, it might not even be there as well, considering he survived when he was five from being executed. He was a part, became a Templar in the end. He fought for King John, despite King John slating him and doing a lots of bad stuff to William of Marshall actually come to think of it you had the master of the knights templar involved you had the papal legate you had the two archbishops of dublin and canterbury and seven other bishops all named in the charter it was all this big one block of text as well not the clauses that we know today i think that was done in the 18th century to describe it I mean, some people might say 
how can it be the greatest moment? You wouldn't you say the twelfth of November, twelve sixteen is when the redrafted version was released by William of Marshall as the guardian of the realm, and it was more not a peace treaty, but as an affirmation of rights, freely given, assurance. And it also had full support of the Pope then. However, you can't have that first one without the original signatories at Runnymede and the agreement at Runnymede, because without that, there'd have been more war. There would have definitely been the French involved in that war, and the king would have definitely lost at the time. So this peace treaty, even though it failed, and even though it's been misinterpreted through time, it's just become such an important cornerstone of Western democracy over this. Why the signing of it by everyone with the King's seal and the agreement is probably the most important moment in history. Dyer, what say you? Well, I'm mute. Um, it's, I, it's an intriguing document. Um, I've um, obviously having studied law and, and now fiddling around in it for, for a living. It, it's, it's one of those things that, that comes up in uh, from time to time. Um, I, th- I think the imp- the importance of it at the time is obviously quite clear, and the influence it had on on other other democracies. Um, to me now, it is, it is very symbolic, and it's one of these things that gets waved about. Um, it has, I think, it has pretty. Clive is probably a, more of an expert on this than I am, but I, I think it has pretty much no significance in in current English law. There's three three three, There's three bits out there. That's still on the statute book, apparently. Yeah, um, and I think it's also one of those things that, that gets gets waved about by people who, who wish it was still twelve fifteen. Um, I don't. I don't really have any questions to say. It's one of those things that it's a very interesting thing to ponder. Um, the, the fact that there were innumerable, in, innumerable different versions um, and further signatories is is proper lawyering stuff, which um, anyone who works in the law today will love. Because uh, I'm sitting here with uh, about the fourteenth redraft of the agreement I'm working on. So yes, it, it carries on to this day, really. Um, so no, thank you, James. That uh, very interesting. Holmes. Uh, firstly, um, I, I haven't had anything for tea. You didn't ask me, but I think in the interest of completeness. Oh, but I'm looking at the bacon fries. God, they've gone quicker than the pork scratchings behind Yeah, you. yeah well, that's why, yeah. But we've got pork scratchings. Saturday. Yeah, well, yeah, I have got a, quite a hungry, nearly 16-year-old on oh, He's in that human dustbin phase now, isn't he? A little bit. Mm. But, but going back to the Magna Carta, I mean, it's kind of interesting in that I've got a number of legal qualifications and we basically, I don't ever remember even the Magna Carta being mentioned when I was studying it. You know, I mean, the, the main foundation of our laws as such, if we want to go back, is the common law, which was established in the, you know, 12th century. And that's still there today. I mean, when I was looking at this earlier, in the last 450 years, the Magna Carta has been referred to 160 times in reported cases. And in each of those cases, it didn't form the sole argument that was being put forward or defended. Um, I think it's slightly overrated as well in that the rights that it gave to free men, well, free men doesn't read it, we don't understand that as well. Free men doesn't mean free men as we understand it now. There are a lot of peasants and serfs that weren't free men, and so they didn't get the benefit of it either. You know, they still, if they wanted to get married, they still had to get their, their sort of nobles' permission. So for me, it's more of just like a victory of the nobles. It was, it was basically cementing their rights 
And as a byproduct, we can then say, yeah, okay, impose some limitations on the monarch, but not as many as we'll see later on if we get to the um, glorious revolution. The thing is, yeah. though, I think it deserves some kudos purely for being King John, because in my head, whenever I picture the signing of the Magna Carta, Carter, it's the lion from the Disney film that sucks his thumb. Highly symbolic. I think the point about, I think the Americans value it more. There is a memorial at Ronnie Mead, and I think that was actually paid for by a bunch of American lawyers, which tells you one thing. Well, we have an American lawyer in the room. John. Uh, we copy all of our shit from you guys. Uh, we're still this afternoon on my desk. I've got a fraudulent transfer matter that uh, dates back to the statute of thirteen Elizabeth. So we've got no originality. Don't make any claim to it. <laughs> Clive, what about you? I'm not really that struck by Magna Carta myself because it was only one of a number of Carters, and yeah it has very little bearing on what we do today. It just means that the monarch is meant to be tied in with what happens to everybody else in law. Everybody's equal under law, but within a couple of centuries, that didn't apply. And as we've seen this week, the, the government doesn't think it applies to them either. <laughs> Are we talking about a particular uh, someone cavorting round Durham, testing no. his eyesight? I think yeah, there's also the point that it was reissued, you know, within a year with almost a third of the restrictions removed. Yes, and I think that's why I mentioned it, and that's why I said it was the signing of the original one that was the most important, because without that, you don't have the second reissue of 1216, which I like to think is the important one, but you can't have that without that original one. And it was the impact it did have in later years because of people misinterpreting it. That's widely acknowledged, and I said it in my original argument. But it is that signing of it, because without the Magna Carta, without obviously it then have been reissued in 1216, 1217, 1297, so on and so forth, the impact it had in later centuries, it, none of that would exist and the world would be vastly different, especially because of the Barons' War, if the original signing hadn't happened in 1215. And that was the point I was making with that being the most important moment rather than the document of 1215 itself. I mean there was one section that dealt purely with the rights of people who were involved with fishing weirs so it was definitely a bonus for people who were looking for certainty in that particular area at the time. Okay um, something to ponder for you though let's go I want to go for something completely unexpected purely because I don't quite get why this next person has chosen this and I want to know more about it Andrew Lay again you've gone for something uh, out there tell us what you went for uh, right yeah so I've gone for something that sort of didn't happen or, or maybe it did. well it did happen but definition of the moment might come into play a bit um, which is the meeting of the physicists Werner Heisenberg and Niels Bohr in Copenhagen in September 1941. See, this is science, and I've never heard of both of them. We're going to have to uh, explain. Okay, so I really struggled to think what to contribute to this topic, and I sort of dismissed a load of things, including actually things like Magna Carta, actually, because. I don't know, last time I was on, I sort of hinted that maybe for some aspects of history, I have a slightly sort of almost deterministic view of progress. And so some things end up as being sort of inconsequential because, okay, the Magna Carta is back in our history, but 
you know, there's other things that will also have contributed to where we are now, as I think people discussed a moment ago. Um, so it would be too churlish to say that this question is like impossible, but that's sort of the point of having a debate about it, I suppose. But the sort of unobservable counterfactuals that we have to think about and speculate about are exactly that. They are unobservable. We can only really work from what we've actually got in our history, from the sort of multiverse of unobservable possibilities. We've got to sort of think about what could have happened. So I thought maybe actually the most important moment in history is something that didn't happen. Like it could have been the survival instead of the death of some famous figure from a childhood disease or a failed assassination or conversely getting run over in New York. Yeah, or yeah, or the, the yeah the chance of early death. How about this one? Something we've never even heard of because they didn't become famous because they died too early, and actually they were destined for greatness. Fertilization of an egg by a particular sperm rather than another one. Whatever. So to be fair, that would make researching this a little amount of research. It would do phenomenally. It would. It would. But anyway, that got me thinking about things about sort of probability and sort of this epistemological mystery we've got about the most important events. So I was racking my brain, and then for some reason, a couple of nights ago, I for some reason couldn't sleep, and the strange oddities of the atoms in my mind that make up my consciousness and memory uh, reminded me of a particular story that I uh, am fond of and have been since uh, childhood. Um, it's not new or different or exciting, really. Or, or you know, it's not me. I, in fact, I knew it from a play called Copenhagen by Michael Frayn, which I remember seeing in its uh, initial run at the National. And I, I thought, I decided this was the perfect historical moment to encapsulate this idea of like uncertainty and chance and so on. So I'll actually get to telling you what it's about. So September 1941, Werner Heisenberg, who is a patriotic German, but crucially, we think not a Nazi. Um, visits his old mentor and friend Niels Bohr, who is Danish, and the latter is the father of quantum mechanics, which, for Alex's benefit and other people, is the field of physics which describes behaviour at like, a subatomic level, and it's both the most supremely accurate thing we've ever done in science, really, but also absolutely bafflingly weird. Um, Heisenberg goes up to Copenhagen for a conference. Bohr doesn't attend the conference because he's sort of protesting against the Germans. But really, Heisenberg's there to meet Bohr. And this course is in, in Copenhagen, which actually gives its name to one of the key interpretations of quantum mechanics, which is that basically particles exist in many states and locations at once, described by probability, but it's only when we observe them that they actually sort of become fixed in time and space. And the, that observation itself collapses the other possibilities. It becomes reality. So hopefully you can sort of see a parallel, perhaps, with historical counterfactuals. So they meet maybe three times, we think. Um, probably the scrutiny of the Gestapo and other spies, especially on Heisenberg's side, because anything he says and gives away might be treasonous. So both parties admit later on that the conversation was sort of veiled, coded, hesitant, unclear, and the true intent of what either party was saying was sort of beneath what was spoken out loud is, is a bit uncertain. And so the questions that historians ask and, and playwright Michael Frayn say is basically, why was Heisenberg there? And what does he want? So the sort of great Jewish talents of physics, having obviously left in the previous decade, he's now the senior theorist in German atomic physics. And he, as such, he's the leading figure of the German project for an atomic bomb. But he and his colleagues are somewhat skeptical. They know it's theoretically possible 
but they're not entirely sure it's feasible. Uh, can it be done? And if it can, of course, should it? And we don't have to worry about the, the details exactly, but it has to do with how much uranium you need and things like that. But I'm not an expert on that myself. So there's a few theories about what was actually discussed. We know that Heisenberg um, was observing like Nazi progress against the Soviets, who arguably perhaps were the more obviously evil regime at the time, possibly, and had therefore sort of come to terms with an eventual German victory and was sort of broadly optimistic for it. And he said as much to Bohr, which pissed the latter off. Um, but that raised the possibility that maybe he was trying to just bring Bohr under his protection to do what he could to secure uh, the Copenhagen school from total Nazi control. But he might have wanted to go a step further. Did he want to co-opt Bohr to the German project for the atomic bomb? Or he might have been curious because Bohr was in vague contact with the Allies and indeed was smuggled out a couple of years later, thence to Britain, thence to Los Alamos um, in an advisory role. And maybe wanted to know what the Allies were doing because if the Germans weren't making much progress, perhaps some just mere hints and news of progress would have been enough to sort of spur them on a proof of concept. But then there's the big, really big ones. Next year, in uh, sort of summer 1942, Heisenberg reports to uh, Speer, the you know, economic head of um, Nazi Germany, that the atomic bomb was not feasible, at least not under any sort of reasonable time scale, or if it were, it would take some really huge resources. And the team redirected their efforts towards nuclear power, and which would be much more palatable for a reluctant uh, member of the regime. And Nazi war effort in that regard went to more towards von Braun and, and rocketry and so on. And so the question is, why did Heisenberg not get there? Because we know it was feasible. We know he may have got his sums wrong because the Manhattan Project showed it was possible. Maybe the Nazi war economy couldn't cope with it, but therefore there's further speculation. Did he visit Copenhagen to maybe grapple with the ethics of the science with Niels Bohr? Or maybe some speculation is that he tried to establish an agreement to basically not develop nuclear weapons because he was aware of how damaging they could be. Or he was trying to create some sort of cover and some sort of story for why he couldn't do it, work out what was the most plausible argument for why he couldn't actually achieve it. And there's speculation that maybe even he deliberately gets his calculations wrong in an act of like mathematical sabotage, or maybe knowing that he was likely to be able to solve them doesn't bother or doesn't attempt the right things. And within that then, we don't know really what role Bohr played. So we don't really know if Heisenberg would have been able to develop the bomb or whether anything Bohr might have said or done that week might have helped him to deliberately or not. But we can of course speculate that a Nazi bomb would have changed the entire course of history. I'll leave you guys to fill in the blanks, but I guess it would probably be used eastwards and that might have secured Nazi economic survival and knocked out the Stalin regime or whatever. Who knows? We can only observe what the history is that we exist in, essentially. So maybe that week in September changed nothing. But I think I'm so arguing that in an indeterminate past, the things that we can't observe were possibilities are possibly as important the things that did occur in our timeline, which is just one of the myriad possible worlds. So in some worlds, the greatest, one of the greatest scientists of his age does develop an atomic bomb for the Nazis. In some of those worlds, something said in Copenhagen in that meeting unlocks that puzzle. 
but by existing in this world, our act to observe in the past as it was eliminates the other possibilities, and, but they were possible. And so that Copenhagen meeting may well be the most important moment in history, but because of what didn't happen. That's a really interesting, do you know what, when you see how much research and prep has gone into mine, the contrast is quite stunning. Um, <laughs> Dyer, any questions? It's a good point, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I, it's, uh, it's a story that's, that's fascinated me for, for a while, actually. I remember reading it um, I, and purely accidentally on the back of um, Heisenberg being the character that Walter White named himself um, in Breaking Bad. Um, that's how popular culture uh, does, does these things to you. Um, but it's, it's intriguing because neither of them, as far as I understand it, neither of them ever really reached a agreement after the fact of, of what was said neither of them ever gave the big sort of tell-all-truth moment on their deathbed. It, it just remained... No, indeed. And that, that was, that's unspoken. The, yeah, that's the point of the, of the play, which is excellent. I think it's on YouTube with a BBC adaptation with Daniel Craig in it, possibly, at Heisenberg. Um, and then after Michael Frayn had written that play, um, the Niels Bohr archive uh, released some letters. And in fact, again, they were multiple drafts of this letter that revealed a bit more... But yeah, again, you're absolutely right. They, they've never really sort of committed to what was said, and they were they, their relationship was really frosty after this. Mm. And so time went by, and it was only like sort of sixteen or twenty years later that they even sort of broached the subject again. So they couldn't really remember exactly. What was said. Yeah, and it, it sort of I mean, from what what I've what limited amount I've read about it, it sort of they, they were obviously both excellent in their field, but the philosophical question was looked like it was actually probably too much for them. They, they couldn't really comprehend. Well, they knew what could come from it was terrible, but they, they couldn't quite comprehend exactly where it would end up. Yeah. And then, and then, so after, uh, after the war, um, the German scientists get rounded up, uh, by the allies. Um, uh, they're sort of, I think it's in the South somewhere, sort of near Switzerland and they get taken back to a house in, uh, UK for that debriefing. And they're there when uh, America drops the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they're basically astounded because they sort of, well, they're astounded for two reasons. I think one that they weren't entirely sure it was plausible, and two that they, you know, were astounded that they actually went through with it and did it. Holmes. No, fascinating. Thank you. Holmes, any questions? Yeah, and this is a bit hypothetical as well. In that, if the conversation hadn't taken place and Hitler did get an atomic bomb. Do we think he would have used it? In that he didn't use gas, and he had access to gas. Yeah, that's a good question, actually. Um, I don't know. You, you might imagine it, uh, especially if the tide was turning. If you know, if you're starting to get forced out of Russia, and you know, uh, Hitler Kursk has happened, and you might go, okay, well, let's fling some bombs over if we can. I don't know. Maybe. Um, that's an interesting I mean, question. Fair, it's, it's another. It's another question that we'll never know the answer to. But. Um, I vaguely remember doing a story for World War Weird where they found some Nazi installation that had evidence of something that could have been a really primitive reactor. Well, that's what they, they went to, and you, and you needed the reactor to create the fissile material, so they sort of went towards power. And that's, you know, why we get fussed about um, uh, Iran and stuff. Right? Are, are, they, are they making bomb material or are they just generating power? And yes, they, they were doing some of that, yeah. And then, of course, there's the issue of the... The Allies took a huge amount of effort. Like it was the entire generation, apart from the Germans that were left over, it's like the entire generation of physics talent and 120,000 people or something in the Manhattan Project. So it was absolutely um, huge effort to achieve what they did there. 
Well, at one, at one point, didn't we? The Brits were more advanced than the Americans, weren't they? Um, but we then had to share how far we were advanced in return for some sort of intelligence, I believe. I think. Oh, right. interesting! I didn't know that. No, there's a, I think I saw a book or something about about the sort of Britain as a nuclear power and that. That does bring a bell, actually. Like it was something to do with some magic beans or something, John. <laughs> the uh, I remember uh, researching the back and forth between Churchill and uh, FDR, and, and of course the United States had the the real estate where it could spread out and make something as complex as the Manhattan Project. Uh, it did end up costing, uh, uh, over, I think it was $1.1 at the time in, in 1940 dollars. And uh, actually, there was one project of the, during the war that was slightly more expensive than that, and that was the B-29 long-range bomber program. But uh, there was a, a massive, uh, uh, for, for the Manhattan Project, there was a, a huge uh, uh, personnel commitment. And uh, for as many people as, as knew part of it, the story, uh, there were only a handful who knew what what everybody was doing and it was an extraordinary level of secrecy uh both on the british and american side well i i heard only just the other week that truman didn't know and he had to be brief when he became president oh that's that's correct when he was sworn in on april the night of april the 12th uh that day he thought he'd be playing poker with his buddies in the evening instead he's getting sworn in as president uh his secretary of war henry stimson said sir i need to talk to you about something but the cabinet members were all circling around. Uh, and uh, so he said, okay, let's talk about it in the morning. And that's when he found out about this project. Stimson had actually concealed the bomb's existence from Truman when Truman was a senator in charge of investigating government waste and, and what the government was doing. Dyer, you got any questions? You've done your questions. Holmes, have you done yours? I, think, I mean, the, the, the one last one that I've got that we've, you mentioned Heisenberg, but pure, a project like this would have more than one person working on it, wouldn't it? Uh, true. There's, there's a lot of other people. There's uh, Otto Hahn and uh, a few other um, top uh, top men. I'm not just <laughs> thinking of uh, Indiana Jones there. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so he's, he's not alone, absolutely. It's, uh, but, um, but he was, you know... So even if this meeting the, the, took place, would, would he have had sufficient... Well, it might, it might have given him the, the hint that things were possible if he'd found out from that way that the Allies were more advanced or if he uh, might have... Uh, yeah, the, the two, two great minds may have come together and just, you know, how ideas might spark off each other. But even, even if that was the case and they had decided to come up with this excuse as to why it wasn't possible, I mean, would that have killed it on its own or would other people just carried on working on it? Well... Possibly, but then I suppose they, they didn't, they, they, yeah, they redirected efforts. So I suppose, again, we'll never know. But um, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe there might have been disquiet in the ranks that someone might have said, hold on, I think we can do it, and you're stopping us. But, yeah. For those who are, are unaware, it's American Warlords, how Roosevelt's high command led America to victory in World War II by Jonathan W. Jordan, 2015. <laughs> it sounds like you had fun doing that one. Uh, Alex, what do I owe you for the promo? <laughs> Gin, when you come over or when I end up in uh, the South. I'm a cheap date. Oh, <laughs> have you got rum? It's a bit early for rum, isn't it, over there? Oh, no, I uh, said Barbados. five o'clock. We were recording about Cuban history. I felt it was a requirement. Uh, okay. Anyway, well, bottom line of my one, major event doesn't necessarily have to have had something happen. Something might not have happened, and that might be the top event. That's 18 points. 
let's pause and get a refill just because I have no gin left and then we'll come back and we've got four more well, five including my rubbish one but uh, more different ones from around the world okay so we are back um, I have gin all is right with the world let's go to Andy in Dublin and do some war now we've done some quite weighty hypothetical and brain consuming stuff let's go and laugh at some you love laughing at the uh, austrians don't you they, they just open themselves up for it and this is <laughs> yeah i feel i'm lowering the tone slightly with this um after quite an interesting hypothetical analysis of <laughs> war and heisenberg but um yeah i mean i was tempted to do quite a serious th uh topic something like um petrov and the whole uh nuclear scare in the 80s maybe but then i decided for something far less serious uh but in the grand scheme of things it does have quite an important impact on european history as a whole so i've opted for an unspecified date during the siege of vienna and that's uh, in 1683 right 1683 yep the the great siege i suppose it's not um so a little bit of background as i know i'm surrounded by 20th century historians on all sides um <laughs> So in 1682, and in the run-up to 1683, the Holy Roman Empire was in a particularly bad way. Hungary had been sort of seeking its own independence from Austria, and there was a lot of infighting and political division. On the same level of maneuvers, I guess, you could say, as the Thirty Years' War, mainly on religious um, disputes. Uh, it doesn't actually come to fighting, but let's just say they're looking the other way. So in 1682, when the Ottoman Turks attack through the Balkans and sweep through Hungary, they reach Vienna fairly easily in 1683, uh, leading to this siege. Uh, the siege that follows is very brutal. Um, it's the main inspiration for the siege of Minas Tirith and the Lord of the Rings. Uh, substitute the orcs for Ottomans and you basically have the gist. Um, the siege lasts for several months. So that means in its entirety, it doesn't actually qualify for this week's topic. However, there is one incident that is not only crucial for the holding of the city, but is also instrumental in, in the development of the continental breakfast. Yeah, bring on the pastry. Yeah, and also... Johnny's have... already excited. Look, he's like, pastry, you say? And there's an Irish dimension to it as well, so I'm keeping with tradition. Cool. Okay, so, as I said, it's an unspecified date because I couldn't find the date. But at some stage, I think it's towards the latter portion of the siege, um, fighting is occurring both above and below ground. The t Ottomans are attempting to undermine the city, tunnel under the walls, both in an effort to collapse them and also just find a way past them. And one evening, a baker named Heiner is working away in his basement, or cellar, or whatever the technical term is, and he hears scratching on the outside of his wall. Uh, now, extremely suspicious of this, he summons the captain of the guards, who is a man named Hauptmann, Thaddeus O'Hussey uh, from County <laughs> Kerry, uh, Dingle specifically. So Hauptmann O'Hussey is fairly convinced that the scratchings on the walls aren't mice, but they're probably the Ottoman Turks. Uh, so, realizing that the city might be under threat, he gathers his men and prepares a surprise of boiling water and presumably some kind of blade weapon as well for when the Turks break through. Uh, the Turks eventually do break through, they get their hot surprise, uh, the men are slaughtered, and then they collapse the tunnel. So the city is saved. So without the actions of Herr Heiner and Hauptmann Thaddeus, uh, the Turks could very well have taken the city. And had they done so, we would be living... I know it's quite, as um, of spurious to say, oh, we'd be living in a very different Europe. And I don't want to say something like, we'd all be speaking Turkish, because I don't think that would be the case. 
but we would have had a fairly fundamental shift in Western culture as we know it, so to speak. Without, it had the city not held, the Ottomans could have turned their attention to the relief army, which consisted of pretty much all of the rest of the armies of Germany and Poland that were advancing on the city led by the Polish king, who in deference to Alina, I'm not going to try and pronounce the name of because I'll probably butcher it. Um, Call him Dave. <laughs> oh, let's go over. Yeah, Dave, Dave works. Uh, so you have a situation then where had the city fallen, God knows what could have happened. And this is a microcosm of the importance of that. But more importantly, after the siege, the imperial uh, majesties offered her Heiner the opportunity to create a celebratory pastry to commemorate the event, allegedly. And to do so, he took the crescent moon of the Ottoman Turks and wrapped it in pastry like a turban, creating the croissant, uh, which Got is Austrian. The end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so forget about the whole balance of power in Europe thing. Flaky pastries and continental breakfast would never be the same were it not for the siege of Vienna. As we know, the French have since stolen it, but let's face it, the Austrians have sort of stopped claiming things, historically speaking, ever since 1945. So we can kind of let them get away with it, uh, if nothing else. Uh, so that's, that's my suggestion as <laughs> the most important event in our history. What happens to Dave in the end? So yes, Jan Sobieski and his winged hussars eventually saved the day, but uh, had the Turks not been distracted by the siege going on, who knows what could have happened when he did turn up with the Christian relief force. So. I was trying to convince an eminent paleontologist on here earlier to call the next dinosaur he discovers Davosaurus. <laughs> I'm not sure I won that argument. Uh, Holmes, any questions? No, not really. So what this boils down to is a set of circumstances that happened on a particular, particular day that led to the development of the croissant. Yeah. Well, also the whole saving of Europe from the Turkish threat, but more importantly, oh. the croissant. <laughs> We're saying basically, are we looking at a similar scenario to like the Islamification of southern Spain if Vienna had fallen across Eastern Europe? But oh, does, yeah. I thought it had to be something that lasted less than seven days. Whereas well, the, the, ultimate, only takes the ultimate result would have been a, as a result of the, the whole siege, wouldn't it? If we limit I, it to the croissant, then I'm not sure if I've got, I'm not a big fan of continental breakfast anyway. And I know, Alex, you kept saying that, you know, Johnny would have his head turned by this, but I've had many breakfasts in foreign hotels with Johnny and he always goes straight to hot meat and eggs, to be honest. That's his first breakfast. This is the second one with croissants. <laughs> Dyer, any questions? Um, given it's all been relatively highbrow and, and quite sensible now, I would just like to proffer the theory that one Turk stood next to another one as they approached the city. One of them said Vienna and the other one said, it means nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <sighs> on, on that note, I'll shut up. <laughs> I like it. I like croissants. Um, let's move on to... Clive, in case you hadn't noticed, I'm saving your moment of potential glory till last. Let's go to Charlotte, because Charlotte's one has already been mentioned, um, and it was coming all along. Charlotte, what have you gone for? I've gone for the Glorious Revolution. Why Wait. Glorious? Why Glorious? Because it was great. No, because it was sort of supposed to be not very bloody, and it was welcomed. Um, I think I've gone through another loophole, because it technically lasted longer than seven days. Um, but the date in question is the 5th of November, 1688. Um, and the background to the Glorious Revolution 
um, is it's kind of long-winded, but essentially you have Charles II on the throne. Um, he is married, uh, but although he's able to have children, he doesn't have any children with his actual wife. Um, so everyone in Britain at the time, you know, the, the nobles, lords, etc., 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 realised that the heir to the throne was his younger brother James, and unlike Charles, who kept his Catholicism hush, 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 James was outwardly Catholic, which obviously worried a lot of people at the time. Um, but they were kind of okay with it because James had had two daughters, Mary and Anne, and Charles insisted that both these daughters be raised Protestant. And they both married powerful Protestants in Europe. Um, then uh, James who uh, his first wife had died, Anne Hyde. So he got remarried and unfortunately he married the Catholic Mary of Modena. But again, it was sort of like, okay, they've not had any children. They tried and there was a lot of problems. Um, so they thought, well, if James becomes king, um, he'll die quickly and then we'll have Mary and all will be fine. Uh, we'll just ignore James. It'll be a blip. Um, then a son is born. Um, and then you have the sort of famous warming pan story in that it was a rumour was spread that um, the child had actually been stillborn. So they snuck a baby boy into Mary of Modena's bedroom um, in a warming pan. I love, where did they get this baby? This has always bugged me. <laughs> <laughs> this baby. Now, buy me he a baby. He doesn't have a surplus supply of babies just just lying around for this event in case. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so this was one that was obviously a rumour that was pushed. And then James was like, no, there were 70 people there witnessing the birth. How dare you question? Can you uh, imagine having 70 people witness you <laughs> give birth? Well, that, I mean, that was the case of a lot of, uh, well, women in the royal family giving birth. They had to have several witnesses. Um, like uh, when Queen Victoria was born, the Duke of Wellington was one of the witnesses there. So that he loved that. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he was clearly down the, the feminine side. Yeah, down the business end, as it were. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so... They not tell you, never go down the head end, otherwise you'll never want to touch your wife again. <laughs> Looking at Holmes and Dyer and they're like, I'm not getting into this. The, um, <laughs> I, 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 the left turn. <laughs> if, you, if you'll apologise for, for, for the slightly coarse reference, the, the best description I ever heard of it was, it's like watching your favourite pub burn down. <laughs> I've got a better one than that. I've got a, I've got a friend who was told who had a pact with his wife that he had to stay top end all of the time. And as things progressed, he had a very very persuasive midwife who said, "Come and have a look." He was like, "No, I, I'm not going to come and have a look." And it, it, she said, "Come and have a look. You may never see this again." So he went down and had a look. And his wife said, "What does it look like?" And uh, he he said, "It looks like a hippo yawning." <laughs> A mutual acquaintance of ours said that uh, his wife's boobs afterwards, it was like someone had smashed his favourite Tonka toy. <laughs> anyway, we're digressing. I'm, 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 and we're, and we're back in the room. Uh, yeah, sorry. It, it, it had seemed quite uptight to this point, considering the last few weeks of um, Napoleon's penis and all the rest of it. So. <laughs> well, I'm glad I you know, could bring this uh, how yeah. it should be. To be fair, Andy started it. <laughs> the croissant. <laughs> <laughs> the croissant to childbirth. Great. Yeah, yeah. I'm here. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so anyway, 
uh, son is born, whether he's uh, actually their son or not, is uh, up for debate. But that meant, of course, that Mary was no longer an heir. This new boy was. Um, and there was a fear, obviously, that James was obviously going to raise his son Catholic, and there'll be a Catholic dynasty, and there, everyone freaked out about that. Um, so Charles II dies, 1685, and James II becomes king. Um, and he goes full Catholic um, and, you know, tries to bring in sort of how he wants the kingdom to be run. Um, seven bishops are, uh, are arrested, you know, all sorts of things going on. So seven um, nobles get together, known as the Immortal Seven. Do they blame themselves that? <laughs> I'd like to think that they spent most of their meeting going, what should we call ourselves? <laughs> Immortal, awesome, dynamic seven. Um, <laughs> so they um, write to William of Orange, who is, of course, married to Mary, and they basically sort of say, invade. Um, we don't want James. We, we want you. We want Mary. Um, so please invade. So William does, and he lands um, in Devon on the 5th of November, 1688. And he afterwards sort of says, you know, um, it was the Protestant winds of the Spanish Armada in 1588 um, that kind of, was still there and swooped him into to Devon and carried him forward to London. Um, James sort of didn't really put up much of a fight. He thought William would fail. Um, he was wrong. <laughs> um, and so James tries to escape. He jumps in sort of a little rowboat down the Thames. And in a sort of weird moment of triumph, he feels, he drops the royal seal over the side of the boat into the Thames. And he sort of said, it was, uh, if William doesn't have the royal seal, he can't, he can't become king. Um, but that, you know, they got around that. Um, and he is captured, but then William just sort of says, I'll let him go. I don't want him to become a Catholic martyr. And James goes with his wife and his son into France, and they um, are looked after by the French royal family. And all of this results in both William and Mary becoming king and queen. So it's the only time I've had a diarchy rather than monarchy in our history. Um, and of course that then led to the signing of the Bill of Rights in 1689, um, which I'm sure the legal bust out there will know more about kind of the ins and outs of it, um, and, and what it means as part of our uh, constitution today. And, um, but one element of it is that no British monarch after could be Catholic or marry a Catholic. Um, and so because of this, and because of the unfortunate circumstances with Mary and Anne and all of their children dying, um, this is why we end up going over 40 people to get to George I becoming king um, in 1714. And then that, of course, directly leads to Queen Elizabeth today and all the stuff that happened in, with the Georges. Oh, and there's the fireworks. <laughs> oh, is it eight o'clock? Yeah. It's eight o'clock. <laughs> um, at least we've not got the cornet this week. That was fucking horrific. Um, so yeah, to fact check something that's sitting in my manuscript I've said that uh, the Duke of Clarence can blame James II for the fact that he wasn't allowed to marry Helen of Orléans is that right? Yeah it's yeah it, I think a lot of them were did sort of yeah cool James is fault. just using you to fact check my book there uh, <laughs> Holmes any questions? Well I think it needs to be noted that James II, when he was arrived in France in exile, that was in 1688, which must have been slightly gutting for him because he missed 
La Anne de la Fistule by just a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the year of the fistula. We're back. We're going to get it in every one from now on. <laughs> oh, I love that people have found two historical fistulas and shared them with us <laughs> since that programme. But I think more importantly, I mean, it, the, the resulting thing, the Bill of Rights, legally it doesn't have that much influence, but it was um, it was referred to in the Gina Miller case, when was it, a year ago, two years ago, whenever that was now, where there are some gaps, obviously, in our unwritten constitution. Um, and I think it's fair to say that what resulted from it was it, it enabled the Industrial Revolution to take place. It didn't directly cause the Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm but it led to circumstances where it made it easier to flourish here than perhaps anywhere else in mm. Europe. Yeah, I think that's um, sort of something I've always read is that, you know, with, with Britain, we, we sort of almost got all of that revolutionary stuff out of the way. We killed Charles, we, you know, we had him executed and we did all of that and kind of set up our constitutional monarchy. So, although obviously centuries after things happened, we didn't go through that, those big revolutionary periods like France um, and America and, and, and Russia and, on Germany and every, everywhere like that. Um, and then the other reason, which is a slight sidebar, that I um, was told at university um, is one of the reasons that we never had a full revolution like the French um, and the Americans and the Russians was, that because, was because that we play. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cricket. I think that's right. Or, or we generally can't be asked. It's too. Oh, yeah. Imagine <laughs> all that people going to all the effort of beheading literally everybody in town. It's just tacky. <laughs> it's just too showy. Yeah, but it's a lot. It's a lot more interesting than cricket, though. Surely. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Some cricket games can get a bit violent. <laughs> Take that back, Clive. Guy, <laughs> yeah. any points on this one? Um, no, I think it, for me, it's 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 the first one that really to me, led to many, many other important things happening, um, like Andrew touched on sort of in terms of the possibility of the Industrial Revolution, the Bill of Rights, and so on. Um, so I think it's it's the most intriguing one in that sense. Um, yeah, there's no sort of questions as such, but I, it's, it's, it's a convincing case for me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm looking Not to give anything away. Looking out of John's window and getting incredibly jealous of not being in Georgia right now or South Carolina or anywhere like that. Um, partly because my friend Carolyn started posting pictures of her drive through Starbucks from Greenville yesterday. Starbucks has reopened. 
devastated that that hasn't happened here yet. Uh, let's move. Let's go. Let's stay with John in Georgia because um, this is a man after my own heart. What have you gone for, John? All right. I started looking at different inflection points in history, those times when uh, people's, the, the way people looked at, at life changed, you know, Battle of Salamis, the conversion of Constantine to Christianity, Chelsea's loss to Manchester City last year. <laughs> and I decided to focus. No, 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 on no. It needs to be the slip for Gerard. The, the, uh, <laughs> but I, so I focused on the 20th century. And when you're looking at the one moment that uh, changed everything uh, and set a century that kind of, even though we're only two decades away from it, I do think it's, it's fair to say that that, that century uh, threw off the orbit the earth was turning on. Um, the, the one moment that stands out, of course, is the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand. Um, it's, you know, a Bosnian Serb named Gavrilo Princip uh, literally pulled the trigger on a game of Russian roulette that Europe had been, been uh, playing. But when I thought about it, you look at before an event and you look at after the event, are, are there opportunities where that trajectory could have changed? And um, I also thought to myself, John, you dumb shit. <laughs> the Alex gave you seven days. So don't try to <laughs> reduce it to the amount of time that it takes for a bullet to enter and exit the neck of an imperial heir. Let's, let's see if you can expand that to seven days. So I chose the last seven, almost the last seven days, J July 23rd through the 29th of July uh, 1914. And it was a, a sort of clusterfuck that, that, changed everything in a lot of ways and it didn't have to go that way and here here's my defense of that prior to the assassination of the, the archduke prior to that last week in july um the, europe was of course a a loaded pistol playing the game of russian roulette uh the pistol was made up of the interlocking alliances so russia was besties with serbia uh, France was besties with Russia, Britain and Belgium were besties with France, and over in the central powers, Austria, Hungary, and Germany were spooning together. So, you know, we've got this inter these interlocking alliances. We've got also these interlocking war plans and strategies. So uh, at this point, Moltke the Younger is looking at his railroad timetables. A lot of other powers are doing the same thing. And then there's, of course, the naval arms race as well. Now, the motive of everybody before July 1914, and again, I'm, I'm going to limit it to one seven-day period to fall within the rules, but before that, the, the motives of the big powers were not to bring down the Ancien Regime. George V did not want to yeet his cousin off the throne. Uh, Nicky and Willie, uh, both cousins were exchanging telegrams during that fateful week in English. You can you you look at them and you think they're translations of German or Russian, but mm. they were speaking in English. Um, even Willie doesn't want a war for most of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was he was one of those guys who you know swaggered a lot and then realized some shit's about to happen, and and he he realized he he probably gave Austria a bigger blank check than he should have. But up till that point, Europe had, uh, had avoided a lot of crises, the uh, Moroccan crisis, the Bosnian crisis, the Agadir crisis. Those things had happened in the 1900s, and every time someone pulled the trigger on that gun, it just went click, because the, there just wasn't a bullet loaded. So the, the great powers 
were playing games of chicken and they got comfortable with that and complacent. Um, and of course, Bismarck famously said, you know, the next war in Europe is going to happen over some damn fool thing in the Balkans. And uh, that's, that's, what, that's what did happen. Well, you have the assassination of the Archduke. Obviously, Austria is up in arms about that. Uh, but that happens at the end of June. And so almost a month goes by and there's a lot of talk. It kind of looks like the, you know, the last, uh, last five minutes of a Tarantino film with everybody pointing guns at each other. But, uh, and, and then on July 23rd, it starts to happen. And this is where the, the balls up is, creates a, a fault that I think can be fairly shared by a lot of people, but it is compressed more or less into that seven day period where events kind of took a, an irrevocable turn. 23rd of July starts with France telling the Tsar of Russia, you know, don't back down from Austrian aggression. Same day, Austria sends an ultimatum to Serbia saying, you're going to be our bitch. We're going, we want you to suppress anti-Austrian uh, uh, sentiment. We want you to let us go in and help you do that. We, we're going to give you a list of people we want you to, we want you to fire. Um, and basically, they, they just did things that no other sovereign nation would find tolerable. Uh, Winston Churchill did call it the most insolent document of its kind ever devised. That happens on one day. The next day, Russia tells Serbia to man up, and Germany says it's going to back Austria. Then the next day, Russia begins partial mobilization. Serbia, its ultimatum from Austria running out, uh, mobilizes its troops. Three days later, July 28th, Austria declares war on Serbia and it mobilizes. The 29th, Russia mobilizes against Austria, which Germany had previously said it would back. So that train of events is very hard to stop at that point. Um, as we know afterward, shortly afterward, Austria mobilizes at the end of July. Germany cannot let Russia get the jump on it, so it feels it has to mobilize. It did so on August one. France couldn't let Germany get the jump on it, so it mobilized the same day that, that uh, Germany was mobilizing. Germany declares war, it brings in the Ottomans the next day. So that train of event, that, that course of events was more or less set during the 23rd through the 29th. We have World War I, of course, it sucks. 30 million people more or less killed, another 8 million civilians perhaps killed. Uh, but more than the war itself, the trajectory of the 20th century is radically altered. Uh, the end of World War I sees, of course, the uh, end of empires. So the Second Reich, uh, the Habsburgs in Austria, the, uh, the Romanovs in Russia, the Ottoman Turks, those empires all go away. We've got the rise of small nations coming out of that war. Uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland, uh, Yugoslavia, Palestine, Serbia, um, and uh, or Yugoslavia, I guess. Uh, you know, we've got women's suffrage. Interestingly, all virtually every nation that uh, the bi every big nation that allowed women to vote did so in the period shortly after the First World War. Uh, in, in the areas of science, we've got uh, things, the developments of things like blood banks and synthetic nitrogen invented by the Germans so they could keep their war production up during World War I, but turns out it's a fertilizer that now feeds like a third of the world or something. Um, and then, of course, that creates, that begets the Second World War. Uh, you know, we've got the, we got the 
we've got Hitler worried about the uh, about the the communists, which all came out of that First World War's carnage. Seventy-five more, million more people die in World War II, and then we end up with the atomic age, ballistic rockets sending humans into space, the Cold War, the UN, penicillin, America projecting its power overseas with amphibious uh, landings, radar. Any number of things stem out of that course of events that might have been avoided, just like the Agadir crisis and the Bosnian crisis after the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand, but it had been so badly screwed up from July 23rd to 29th, it would have been very hard to reverse that course of events afterward. So that's what I got. Could not have put that better myself. Uh, just for vindication, George V mentions in his diary uh, the assassination. And the next entry he makes on it is the 24th of July that week. And actually the government aren't paying any attention until the 23rd of July either. So that is really the key six days when it all kicks off. Uh, Dyer, any questions? Um, it's, it, it's fascinating to hear it put in that context and in that way because i've not heard it sort of put quite like that before and i'm very grateful for it actually because it's something i'm going to be studying later in the year which is um probably going to be quite useful just as a guideline um i did no no questions as such um andrew probably knows the kind of the that period of history the beginning of it a little better than i do um so he's going to probably do the you know the intelligent probing stuff i hope vaping <laughs> um but no, thank you, John. That was that was fascinating. Clive's looking a slightly more concerned now. Holmes. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think what's interesting as well, and, and what doesn't normally have come across, but the, the actual assassination—that was the second attempt, wasn't it? And that was a complete fluke. Yeah, I didn't want to get into what probably a few other people will talk about next week, but yes, the this would have been—I've heard it compared to what would have happened if with the Kennedy assassination. There was that other guy in the grassy knoll, and instead of, instead of shooting Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald had missed, and then the Secret Service drives the car away, and okay, that's it for the day. Let's call it a wrap, guys, and then the Kennedy uh, car comes, drives back up to the grassy knoll. Um, the driver of the Archduke's car was told, we're going to go over to the hospital because other people had been hurt in the first assassination attempt. Yeah, was, in, the, in the first attempt, they did, they chucked some grenades at the car, didn't they? That was what It exploded under the car behind him. So they're going to go to the hospital, but nobody told the driver until too late that they were going to take a different route. So the driver's like doing his driver stuff. They tell him, you screwed up, you missed your turn. So he stops the car and just happens to stop it right in front of the assassin who like, you know, thinks, how did this happen? Pulls out his, uh, I think, Fabrique Nationale 1910 pistol, sprays the car, and uh, Sophie and uh, Franz are, are murdered. Well, also, he was he was actually coming out of a sandwich shop. He, on his way home, he'd stopped to get a sandwich. So it's even... You know, he was coming out of a Starbucks that had just recently reopened. <laughs> I, I was in Sarajevo last year, and I was struck by how small the bridge was there. But I didn't see a sandwich shop. <laughs> <laughs> Could have done with Asani at the time as well. The, the, as part of the ultimatum, Austria required the uh, sandwich shops to be closed. Croissants. Isn't it like a massive coincidence as well that the number plate of the car that he was driven in was something like 111118? I don't know. I'd forgotten about it. If you Google it, it's in the, the equivalent of the Imperial War Museum in Vienna still. Because somebody told me, and you obviously think, yeah, bollocks. But if you Google it, it 
looks like it's genuine. Interesting. It's. Uh, but do, yeah. do you think if we go back to your argument, John? I mean, you, a you, eleven, you, eleven, eighteen. So it's it's there, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Wow. So was um, the driver driving to test his eyesight? Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay. I was just going to ask that, John, you mentioned that Europe was a tinderbox anyway. So isn't it likely that this was probably going to happen at some point, even if it wasn't in the, the seven days that you've outlined? There's never an argument, go. isn't there, for saying that Germany wanted it to happen before 1916 when they projected the Russians would be ready? Right. And uh, I think it was uh, like uh, Hotzendorf or Herzendorf, I mean, someone like that who wanted to go to war with Serbia. They were, like I said, playing games of chicken. And um, But I, I think the assassination of the Archduke, getting out of the seven-day time frame a bit, created an emotional response and compressed the, uh, it, the, the emotions of that moment compressed the times for decision beyond the capabilities of men like uh, Tsar Nicholas or, or Wilhelm II and, and Moki I mean, and the rest of them. The Austrians sent that thing out and they didn't expect Serbia to accept it because it was horrific. <laughs> Serbians turned around and agreed to most of it. Uh, which Absolutely. And remember, the uh, the Slavs who lived in Serbia were already, I think this was like the, the anniversary of the Battle of Kosovo when he was... Uh, assassinated uh, they were already unhappy with the uh with the the ethnic germans uh the ethnic ethnic slavs you know just there there was a lot of nationalism there 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 were emotions going on but at the level of uh of france russia austria and germany the the powers that were really making the big decisions um i i think if the, if the this had been a crisis like the moroccan crisis it might have unfolded a little slowly with a little less emotion, such that they had a little bit more time to see if cooler heads could prevail. They, they might not have, of course. It's almost like you're expecting the other side to back down. And then when they don't, because communication isn't what it is today, you can't cancel it. Anyway, you've reached a tipping point at that point, and then that's it. The um, documents at the Royal Archives and looking at the telegrams going backwards and forwards between the kings, um, not until the last last minute did anybody politicians included think it was going to escalate beyond a localized um conflict in the balkans between austria and serbia mm -hmm. and in, in many ways you had uh i think it was uh you know uh, that interaction between molke and uh and wilhelm discussing the the, the mobilization schedule and, and i've always wondered why if you do a mobilization on day one why can you not just hit a pause button if you think that there's a chance to back down? It shouldn't be an irrevocable machine, but I think some of the military, at least the Prussian military, maybe some others, Russia, viewed mobilization as kind of a, a self-executing a self Frankenstein monster, to mix metaphors. I haven't done this in detail since I wrote it up. Um, for George V, which would be two years ago now, but to my recollection, it came down to the fact that the Russians drew up along the Austrian border and Nicholas said to Wilhelm, 
I will not let them cross the border. If you stand down, I can't stop mobilisation, but I can guarantee you they will not cross the border if you back down. And then there's a point shortly afterwards where William is saying one thing to Nicholas and doing another. Um, and I think Wilhelm was swayed. But I mean, there's some of his ministers, there's one minister, and I can't remember who it is, who leaves an audience with William in tears because he thinks that the, the Kaiser doesn't want a war. Um, so Wilhelm was being push, pushed pretty hard and at some point does flip from being trying to keep peace and then sort of I, the, Nicholas basically says he's been false all along. Um, but yeah, Nicholas didn't really have the power at that point to, to force the army to come back off the border, but he did promise Wilhelm that they would not cross that line and that he would guarantee that if the Germans would stand down and they would. Yeah, uh, Catherine the Great one time referred to the French Revolution as a, uh, a collection uh, or of a machine, as a machine that the people like uh, Robespierre lacked the ability to control. And I think that by this point, uh, there was a war machine that nobody had done, dealt with before. Uh, trains were now at their, their peak of uh, strategic usefulness. Uh, and that machine, the, the, the leaders of the Ancien Regime could not, they just didn't know how to control it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, let's, let's do our penultimate one. Mine will go last, but it's, it's not going to be as in-depth as this. Clive is so convinced he's going to win this week, despite Johnny's obvious prejudice <laughs> against any choice that he made. Nonsense. <laughs> Clive, what have you gone for? Well, can I just start out by giving a shout out to Julie Carlson in, Carlson in California, who is your biggest fan. She has listened to every single one of your podcasts. Quite extraordinary, totally barking, but good on you, Julie. And thank you also, Julie, for pressurising Alex to have me on tonight. <laughs> I did. You know what? It's because I put out every week an invite and you don't answer. So I thought you didn't want to. And of course, as soon as she said Clive, I was like, of course we'll have Clive back because it's just funny to watch Johnny squirm. <laughs> I just assumed Clive had a man who answered for him, but... Yeah. <laughs> a little man, please. Yeah. Sopwith, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, what I'm going to talk about today, I just want to get some terms defined. It's either an event or a series of events, or it's the myth that surrounds those events. I don't care which way you take it. It's a matter of what your personal belief or whatever is as to whether you think that this happened or whether it is just a myth that happened, a myth. But it's the creation of the myth is as important as the events. So what I'm talking about is the death and resurrection of Christ, which led to the foundation of Christianity or the creation of the myth of the death and resurrection of Christ, which in itself led to the creation of Christianity, whichever way you take that. And to me, this is without a doubt the most decisive event in history for the last 2,000 years, unquestionably so. Christi the foundation of Christianity has changed our world. And without the death and resurrection or the myth of it, there would have been no foundation of Christianity. So it really does come down to those from Friday afternoon till Sunday morning, bang, that's the time. It's well within a week. For good and bad, Christianity has impacted upon every aspect 
just about of world history, from crusades to anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism existed to an extent before, but my God, Christianity put steroids into it. From conquest and colonization, justified by Christianity or sometimes led by Christianity. The abolition of slavery was led by Christians. The divine right of kings, the Reformation and every religious conflict. We've heard today about Magna Carta and all the bishops who are lined up there. We've heard today about the inglorious revolution of 1688. All of those were driven by, by religion. And so much British and particularly English history has been driven by re religion since the Reformation. It wasn't just the glorious revolution that led to the Industrial Revolution. It was the whole essence of Protestantism in this country. The dissolution of the monarchy, oh, oh sorry, dissolution, that's, that was a bit optimistic. The dissolution of the <laughs> monasteries, which gave, transferred wealth to a class that could then utilize that to create the Industrial Revolution a couple of hundred years later. All of these things tie in with religion. The whole concept of Whig, uh, Whiggish politics, which led to the development of the British Empire, came from their rather disturbed view of religion. Christianity, much more so than other religions, has impacted upon the world. And that's partially because of the dominance of Europe in world history and colonization and empires and all the rest of it, Chris, Christianity has been at the front. Yes, Islam has done a lot. They've got as far as Vienna and they gave us croissants, but <laughs> uh, they haven't had quite, they've had a significant impact, but nothing like Christianity. Judaism obviously gave rise to Christianity, but it's never had the numbers to compete. Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism, other religions have all been strong, but never had quite the impact. Christianity is affected everywhere. The Americas, the whole of the United States was basically founded upon a bunch of dissolute Protestants going over there in the first place. But among the signatories to the American Declaration of Independence were Catholics as well as Puritans. There was a whole spectrum of non-conformist and conformist religious types, but all of them Christians. Um, Latin America has been absolute, the whole history of Latin America has been driven by religion, up to and including the election of the current Pope. Africa has, although Africa does have other religions, Christianity has had a massive impact, partially because of uh, colonial policies of European powers are justified on the basis of religion. But religion is right up there all the way through to Desmond Tutu and everything else. Even in Japan, which has never accepted Christianity per se, the Jesuits in Japan back in the 16th or 17th centuries were one of the only avenues that kept Japan in contact with the rest of the world. In China, again, a country that hasn't embraced Christianity, Christianity has still had an impact, if nothing else, in selling opium to the Chinese. And same with India. Marxism, well, there are arguments that the Vatican played a greater role in the destruction of the Soviet bloc than would, would be, um, than one might imagine especially with the Polish Pope that was around at that time. Religion 
Christianity has impacted upon politics throughout history in so many ways. It's impacted upon culture, from sacred music to the Velvet Underground's track, Jesus. Christianity is up there. Churches, spires, defining our cities. Religious paintings, um, plays, everything. Christianity is right there. It's impacted upon economics. We talked about the monasteries. We talked about the wealth of the church. We talked about the dissolution of the monasteries and the way in which that happened in many, many other countries as well. It's impacted upon everybody's daily lives. There can be no other event in history that's given rise to quite such an impact. And to me, I don't really think that one can say that anything other than the creation of Christianity has had such an impact upon the shaping of our world today. Very nicely put, Holmes. Yeah, I mean, it's very well put. And you know, it's hard to disagree with any of that in terms of the influence of Christianity. But we're supposed to be applying a little bit of historical rigour here, aren't we? And, it, you know, history's most important moment. And we don't know if that particular week ever happened. We don't ever happened. But it's not, it's the foundation of Christianity that either arose out of that week or the myth that was created about that week, which must have been created pretty soon afterwards. Well, but, but do we really know that? I mean, if we look in terms of evidence that survived from an archaeological perspective, there's very little from around that time survive. You know, even if you go to Great Britain between 400 and, and the uh, Battle of Hastings, there's no evidence at all, really, as to what happened in Britain. So in terms of written evidence that this actually happened, there's nothing contemporary exists as far as I'm aware, is there? Are we not back to Andrew's argument, though, of it could just necessarily be like his argument? It didn't happen, but the impact is still... Well, it could be, but I think Andrew's argument is slightly more convincing. I mean, Clive's argument about the impact of Christianity I, I, is very compelling and but, correct. But, but, but you'll, you'll accept that... Happened on these, these particular days, I think at least Andrew argued that a meeting took place and there's a debate as to whether, you know, certain things were discussed at that meeting, but we're now... We're basically boiling this down to, from a historical perspective. Well, it either happened or, or the myth was created, and the myth must have been created at a particular time. But so I'll the, take one of those two. But was the myth <laughs> even created in, in that week? Or was it written up 100 years later, 200 years later? It wouldn't have been 100 years later. It would have been much sooner because people like Peter and Paul were around much before. But I, I don't know. I don't know to the contrary. I, I know Alex did flag up earlier that the Holy Week may be on this and when I googled it I noticed that I didn't realize it was called the Holy Week and I didn't realize they'd named each day of those weeks yeah. every day in those weeks as well but I know Wednesday Monday Thursday Good Friday Holy Saturday there, there is but it's part it, it's um where were, where were you educated a <laughs> oh my God. in the north <laughs> yeah <laughs> Comprehensive, a comprehensive in the Midlands in the Not 90s. Not a Catholic <laughs> school, Clive, like you. Oh, God. <laughs> Just to, so for, for the subject, for the point of debate, some of the other religious things that nearly made it in today were the Council of Nicaea, which, of course, is 325, is when they decide Jesus is the Son of God um, and sort of get all their ducks in a row, as I understand it. The Edict of Milan was going to be Emma's, but she's poorly tonight. Um, and John mentioned um, the conversion to Christianity of Constantine. Um, is there an argument for saying there's a better 
better way to frame the argument of the impact of Christianity than behind Hobie Week? I think that's what it comes down to. I think um, I think all of Dive's argument were very well argued and incredibly persuasive. But if we just limit it to it from a historical perspective, did that did this actually happen? And then, or even did it well, happen? Even though the Pope says it did, and that when I was when I was a kid, we were taught Greek by Michael Tolkien, who was J.R.R.'s son, and his answer to anything when he was asked a question by obnoxious kids who was teaching was, oh, sir, why do we have to do this? His answer always was, Pope says so. And that was it. <laughs> Which was a good enough answer. I think so. I think at my school, we only did like half an hour of RE a week, and we never listened during that either, which you can probably tell from uh, <laughs> my slight position of ignorance here. I had 10 years of Jesuit-run boarding schools. Dyer, any questions? I think that's, that's two ends of the spectrum, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, it, it just, it, I, I'm sort of in agreement with Andrew in the sense that it, it's it's a huge, huge thing to hang on an event over a few days, which may or may not have happened, or the creation of, or the creation of a myth thereafter. Um, I, I, the, one of the things that, that that sort of intrigues me and has just sort of popped into my mind is what would have filled the vacuum if it if it hadn't. Anyone? <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. That's, um, that's a lot more religions bit. today, I guess. I mean, if it wasn't for, well, what happened because of Christianity, or should we say rulers using Christianity to their mm. own advantage? Yeah. I mean, we'd have mm. a lot of the Nordic religions still today. Um, got a load of African religions, a load of... Middle Eastern religions that yeah, got great, suppressed. Yeah, great prevalence of Islam surely would be a good bet. Yeah, it might have been that something like Mithraism would have survived and endured better and been more persuade, per pervasive. Hmm. I did notice earlier when I looked it up, you've got Palm Sunday, then you've got Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday, Holy Wednesday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and then Holy Saturday. You think the naming Spy, of those days. Why Wednesday, no? Spy Wednesday, Spy Wednesday, please. Well, it said, when I looked at it, it said Holy Wednesday brackets Spy Wednesday. Oh. But I thought, the naming of those days, that's a Friday at 4.45 decision, isn't it, really? <laughs> 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 what are we, we going to call tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. We've nailed the Thursday. Eh? all the gaps and let's go down the pub. Which is the theory we're operating on tonight, obviously. Um... No, it, it it is a hugely compelling argument. It's 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 just a struggle to to hang everything on that one particular moment, um, and the notion that that it, it's driven it all. I get it, but I'm struggling with the concept a little. Johnny, we need to go to a theological night class at some point. I'd like to appeal this decision. <laughs> we don't need to go to. Hasn't happened yet. Incompetence of the judges. We don't need to go to theology school because Andrew Dorman is going to school you on why you can boil all religion down to different varieties of... Yeah, I used to do this joke on stage all the time. Um, <laughs> so in the beginning, you've got Judaism, which is the original. Most of the other religions from in the West stem from Judaism. So Judaism is Coca-Cola. Uh, then after that, along comes Jesus. And Jesus, as we all know, was diabetic. So he needs a sugar-free <laughs> version. So he takes most of the original ingredients and he calls out the Old Testament and then he adds new stuff to it like the Gospels and Aspartame and he creates Diet Coke or Christianity 
And then you have your spin-offs from Christianity. You've got Catholicism, which is Coke Zero, zero carbs, zero sugar, zero tolerance. And then after that, you've got Protestantism, which is Coke Life. People do know the difference, but nobody's really sure why. <laughs> so does that make Islam Pepsi then? Yes, Islam is Pepsi. And then unfortunately, you've got the Pepsi Max extremists who take things way too far, but we're not allowed to talk about that. Where does cherry it? Coke fit in? Is that Mormonism? I think so, because it's, it's sort of that you know, unusual flavor that people are aware of, but no one wants to try. <laughs> and it won't get to be that Pepsi ginger that's just a fucking abomination that can never be made. Oh, we're never going to talk about that. <laughs> that's I've tried that. It's that's one of those really, one of those really Barbie churches in America. Uh, you know, as someone who can just about see the Coca-Cola headquarters from where <laughs> we are, it's over in that direction. Um, I think that's an apt uh, metaphor for it. Uh, I'm loving it. You used to I do that. I feel better about understanding it now, Holmes. I presume that Church yeah. of England is Tizer. <laughs> Something that no one outside England understands. Or Bovril. <laughs> I don't know about Andrew, but I'm I've very... actually just learned more, more about religion there than I ever did at school. Guys, <laughs> 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 do you want me to make it easy for you about trying to wrestle with Clive's argument? Because I can just blow it out of the water with mine. Go on. First, there was nothing. Picture the Emirates, Carling Cup night. <laughs> Versus like some second division dross with no crowd. Then there was a very loud bang. The end. Thank you very much. I don't think we need to hear any more now. It's suddenly become stunningly clear. Yeah. <laughs> the big bang. None of it. None of anything you're talking about happens without the big bang. The big bang took. Didn't that that took place in like seven and a half days though? Didn't it? No. <laughs> I get the rest I'm, I'm going on the theory it's like a car backfiring. It's quick, right? <laughs> there wouldn't have been a car there beforehand. No, exactly. That's why it's so important, Clive. I re there's, a, there's a Radio 4 podcast editor shitting himself at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but you, say, you say about history, um, obviously the most important moment in history, but how, what do you class history as? Do we class it as written history, and before right. that, everything else is archaeology? Or a six-mile-wide asteroid hits the face of the Earth and blows the dinosaurs away. How about that one? If not, after the pub would be a lot more dicey. If you had to dodge a T-Rex on the way home from the tube station, the world would be very different. And there'd be even more chicken bones outside our tube if that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, as ever, while you two make up your minds, we'll go around the virtual room and find out what everyone was going to go for. If you can't have your own choice, which way would you have gone? Charlotte? Croissants. Croissants. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have them for breakfast, can't live without them. <laughs> I'm like Philistines, all of you. Andrew Lay. Uh, yeah, I get the argument that it's sort of almost too big, but it's so, as Clive said, so woven into the fabric of our, our lives and a lot of historical stuff. I'm going to have to go with Christianity. Andy Dorman? Um, I'm riddled with too much Catholic guilt not to go with Christianity. I blame my Irish. <laughs> Clive, you can't have Christianity. I would therefore go with croissants. Yes. <laughs> James? I'm actually going to go with the uh, John's choice and that week, which obviously led to the First World War, 
because while it's more recent, it's had such an impact on our lives and continues to have an impact and will for years to come. And because it was just on such little minute moments, I just have to go for that one. Uh, I did notice that how the night has gone wrong for you, James. You were so confident at the beginning. Your face has just got more <laughs> depressed as we've gone along. But I'll go with that as well. I'll go with John's. John, what about you? I've got to vote with uh, Clive this time. I do think there are some some times in history when potentially Christianity could have fizzled out, but they had great publicists. Uh, Theodosius, uh, Constantine, a few of those guys. And so, uh, you know, you look around and and a lot of colleges, hospitals, and social services, and a lot of other stuff are premised on that. Excellent. Alina, are you even there? I am. I've actually been listening as well. So um, <clears throat> I'd love to say Andrew, only because he mentions Poland, and, um, you know, obviously. But I'm really sorry, Andrew. You're my second. So, I'll take it. I'll take yeah. it. I'm going to go with the lovely, very sweet... James is having a look. Is it him? I was like, please don't go with me again. <laughs> no, I'm going to go with Clive and Christianity. Um, Johnny, Holmes, which way have you gone? I think we're, unanim we're unanimous again. Again, um, I think that if we'll tell you the top three, but the ones that didn't make the top three, um, Magna Carta didn't make the top three. We weren't convinced by that. I have to say... I was slightly relieved that James brought this up tonight and not Clive, because that might have been a test of my legal knowledge, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but he argued it very well. argued it very well. Um, the Hessenberg bore, I, it's just a little bit too hypothetical for me. Um, the um, Austrian siege, I don't really like croissant. I can't even pronounce them. They were a bit stale to me. I mean, uh, the whole sense of thing aside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like there was a more educated argument in there than just to be... Yeah, but, but again, you know, with my 1970s, early 80s, Midlands comprehensive education, I can only pick out the simple things. Then I think we were in the top three, we had um, Clive was in third, which he made a very compelling argument. And if the question was slightly different, he would have probably won. You got the people's vote, Clive. That's all I care about. I wasn't going to win Johnny's vote ever anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 had, I had you in second, uh, but, you know, it's, 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 it's a democracy. <laughs> second, the Glorious Revolution. There is, a, there is a significant impact onto the effects of that that, we can fit, that that are still around today, even though it possibly went over the, breach of the, the brief of seven days. But I think overwhelmingly in first was John and those seven days in July that led to the First World War. The effects, you know, as you said, led to the Second World War. There was immediate effects after it. Then it led to the Second World War. And I think we can still feel the effects of it today. Yeah, well, I think... I'm just glad from my perspective, I don't have to do a cocktail based on Christianity and I get to transfer it. <laughs> oh, you could have had Benedictine and God knows what else in there. <laughs> or just rum and coke. I think... Um, <laughs> <laughs> when I was... Um, when I was... Sort of, I started scribbling at the beginning of it, I, I kind of subtitled this Seven Days That Shook the World when you, when you said it had to be over a period of seven days. And I think, just for me, in, in my own weird criteria, I think John's, John's really nailed that. Um, I did. I have to say, Andrew, I, I enjoyed the, the Heisenberg ball thing because it's a really fascinating subject. So yeah, you're, you're so blinkered by our own timeline. You're like racist, but for multiverses. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, We're um, always saying that. Does that mean he's multiversist? <laughs> yeah. 
chronically multiverses. I mean, it's one of those things where had it, had it been the greatest omission in history, I think it probably would have been, would have been absolutely out front. But, um, but no, I, again, another a fascinating series of arguments. But yeah, John nailed it for me. Brilliant. Well done, John. Thank you. Uh, as, as many times as I've been on this and have come in last, I thought I might be the Susan Lucci of, uh, of uh, History Hack. So thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, next week, we're going to go back to doing what we do best, which is laughing at people's misfortune in history, because I've decided we're going to do uh, history's most stupid assassination attempt. Um, it do I don't care whether it was successful or not because I, I don't want to rule out all the Castro ones. So I'm going to make it that you don't have to, uh, they don't have to have succeeded in the end. But there has to be an attempt on someone's life and it has to be a complete farce. What's so, the cutoff for assassination versus just bog standard murder? It's got to be political, hasn't it? <laughs> it's got to be politically motivated. Yeah, because on that basis, like, you know, Shipman would be the best assassin in the UK. <laughs> yeah, it can't be motivated by stealing people's inheritances. It's got to be political. Tristan Zara, the, the Dardarist poet and anarchist leader, said that every act is political, so that covers everything. So sure. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason we keep inviting you back, Clive, is because you say things like that and Johnny just looks scared. <laughs> On that note, Alex, is there a limit to the number of intended victims at one uh, at one attempt, like uh, the gunpowder plot? Uh, I don't mind <laughs> if there's going to be collateral damage, but they should be going. I mean, obviously, like they should be going for one person. Ever, ever the lady. Yeah. <laughs> to, to be fair, the gunpowder plot though it wasn't necessarily stupid. It was just the stupidity of one person. But then yeah. I shouldn't really rule the gunpowder plot out because that was a, a multi-political assassination attempt, wasn't True. it? It was quite had a whole their, Yeah, they can use their uh, discretion on that one, but it should be politically motivated. Um, uh, that, that's acceptable, but if there's collateral damage, we won't count them. But <laughs> yeah, something like the gunpowder plot, you guys can use your uh, discretion on the judging. Although it couldn't couldn't be that bad if he uh, branded a mask that uh, they used in the purge. <laughs> Alex, Alex, that needs that just needs to go in your Twitter bio immediately. I don't mind if there's collateral damage. <laughs> oh God! Yes. I've said far worse. To be fair, when he when he says that although an entire family got wiped out, but it wasn't too bad because. As a result, they invented the fondant fancy in a tribute. <laughs> I have to say that for all the offensive shit I've said, especially about French people on this podcast, I've not been called out once. Whereas Andrew Dorman gets the first uh, kudos for being taken down <laughs> by that uh, Irish central after he said Oops. <laughs> they were listening and they weren't best pleased to be described as homeopathic. Uh, which is quite hilarious. But uh, you took it well. Well done. Uh, guys, thank you very much. It's been a blast as ever. Uh, see some of you next week if you fancy it. Uh, I, I want to go and drink more now. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Well Thank you. Good stuff. Join us over the weekend as well. Tomorrow we have Miranda Kaufman talking about Black Tudors, her fantastic book. Join us for that. And then on Sunday, it's the big one. It's our 100th episode already. And we will be talking to John Nicholl about his fantastic new book, Lancaster, about the greatest aircraft ever made. Um, I'm not having it on any other aeroplane. It wins, hands down. Um, and you'll find out why. 
you can now nominate History Hack for an award. If you go to BritishPodcastAwards.com, you can nominate us for a Listener's Choice Award. Uh, you have to do your vote by the 6th of July 2020, uh, and they will announce the winner at the British Podcast Awards on Saturday, the 11th of July 2020. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind, we'd really appreciate it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.